the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Several years ago, I interviewed my friend Steve Forbes about his book, Money, How the Destruction of the Dollar Threatens the Global Economy and What We Can Do About It. In that interview, he anticipated many of the problems that we see cropping up right now. So we're pulling this interview out of the vault and publishing it for you here. We will also follow up shortly with a brand new interview with Steve to bring this discussion up to date and let him share what he's seeing right now. So here's Steve Forbes from The Vault on Money, How the Destruction of the Dollar Threatens the Global Economy. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're going to be talking today with Steve Forbes. Steve Forbes is the editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, which uh, publishes Forbes magazine. Steve is uh, also the author of a number of important books, um, and I happen to think that his latest is his most important, uh, the one that um, may have the greatest uh, impact on the history of economic debate in our country. The book is entitled Money. The subtitle is How the Destruction of the Dollar Threatens the Global Economy and What We Can Do About It. Steve Forbes, thanks for, for joining us today. Great to be with you, Jerry. Thank you. Um, So as I said before this interview, since this is long form, we're out here in in cyberspace. This is we're not uh, obligated by sort of the normal rules of dumbing it down or lowest common denominator. I'm inviting you to let your inner intellectual geek run wild and any obscure points or difficult points or historical allusions that you might suppress in a, in another environment, let it fly. Be as smart as you want to be. Fair enough? <laughs> that sounds good. All right, good. Um, I'm, I'm curious, why this book right now? Uh, because it's clear that the our authorities, monetary authorities, political authorities, economists, know less about money than their forebears did 100 years ago. As you know, we're now uh, marking the centennial of the beginning of the First World War, the Great War, which shattered the old system in more ways than one. And uh, the flounderings that we have today make it very clear that uh, the knowledge that enabled us to uh, go from uh, the late 18th century through the First World War, where we had the greatest increase in human wealth in uh, history, and that uh, one and a quarter centuries, we created more wealth than all the previous centuries put together. And a key element was uh, stable money, starting with the British pound. Before that, you have the Dutch, but they didn't have quite the global influence that the Brits ended up having, especially with the Industrial Revolution. And then the United States under Alexander Hamilton uh, put in a very sound money regime that uh, made the United States a standout. Uh, especially vis-a-vis the Latin American republics, which achieved their independence in the following decades, but have been marked ever since, damaged ever since, by chronic monetary instability. And uh, money is a very simple subject. They want to surround it with a lot of jargons and equations. Uh, The high priests want to make it appear that even if you master brain surgery or nuclear science, 
you are incapable of understanding money, uh, which is preposterous. All right. I take your point. We know a lot less about monetary policy than we did 100 years ago. Um, and that didn't, that didn't, you know, the past 100 years have been a time of severe confusion about monetary policy. But what you've known about it, you've known for for a good deal of time before you wrote this book. Um, and we've been we've been ignorant about money for a long time. And you've been knowledgeable about money for a long time. So is there something that you sensed about an opening moment in time, in history, in national dialogue that would cause you to write a book about monetary policy at this particular moment? We had a decent run in the 80s and 90s when we had a semi-stable monetary policy, give it a C+. Plus. But we had a terrible decade in the 70s, and we still haven't recovered from the terrible times since uh, the early 2000s. And people who feel that crises lead to reform, well, we did not get a return to a gold standard in the 1980s. We manifestly have not had a return to a gold standard today. So I think that people are beginning to recognize that the Fed is floundering, that the central banks, one, don't know what they're doing, and two – cannot manage economies any more than commissars could in uh, Moscow. And uh, so it seemed to be a right time that people are going to be looking again. You see examples of it. Paul Volcker, uh, he did not come out in favor of a gold standard, but he made it very clear that uh, what we're doing now is creating more crises, that it's a very unstable situation. Yeah. So he wants a new look. You had the Bank of England. I'm, three I'm told, years ago. by the way, that the first question Volcker asked every morning when he came to the office was, "What's the gold price today?" He, he's on to it. Then, <laughs> so it's, uh, so glad, it's like I'm, not I'm, official. I'm glad, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And uh, then three years ago, the Bank of England came out with a study. Uh, they didn't quite connect the dots, but they uh, reached the conclusion that the instability in terms of monetary crises. Uh, and uh, economic crises, banking crises have increased enormously since we ended the Bretton Woods gold standard back in the early 1970s. Hmm. So people are the, – the, the intellectual ferment is starting to stir again. And uh, so the key purpose of the book is, one, to show people this is not a complicated subject, and two, to help uh, push the process so that uh, – we do get this time a real reform and not continuing the confusion and floundering that we've had for 40 years. I see. Uh, in other, So w what I'm hearing you say is even though we didn't officially have a gold standard in the 80s or 90s, it was close enough that you didn't really feel the need to go out there and push hard. But now we are so utterly far from monetary discipline that it becomes necessary to stand out there like a voice in the wilderness. And I suppose a corollary of this is the worse – the monetary abuse, the greater the opportunity for reform, because the more pain will come from the mistakes. In other words, the, I mean, the wonderful thing about foolishness is it creates lots of instructive pain. <laughs> well, uh, the hope of the book is that we won't have to go through a terrible crisis to uh, make the reform, but to lay the groundwork that everyone understands even now. Uh, we're, it's like... Uh, a flu that won't go away. It's not pneumonia. Uh, it doesn't put you in bed yet, but uh, you don't feel very good. And, do, you, do, uh, do, you do you believe that we will get a genuine monetary reform, and by which I mean gold standard, without, I, I, with, I, without I a crisis? Gonna, 
I, I think we can. Uh, the key is who do we elect as the next president? And uh, I think uh, uh, that uh, monetary policy will come up somewhat in 2016. But the key thing is to uh, have candidates become familiar with it okay. and uh, create a uh, body of uh, people, you might say, right. who uh, understand the thing and can push the thing. Uh, people are not outside the economics profession. Uh, most people are not resistant to a gold standard. They are fed a lot of horror stories about it, right. but they instinctively understand that uh, stable money is good and that a weak dollar is not good for the United States. Well, which, which uh, candidate countries which, don't have a weak currency. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Which candidates um, that are out there, viable candidates, are for a gold standard? Well, I think uh, certainly Rand Paul understands it. He will be hitting other issues because he doesn't want to come across, I don't think, as a clone of his father. Right. But uh, he, he doesn't uh, – his, his, his uh, understanding of it is uh, almost from uh, babyhood. Right. And uh, But I think uh, other candidates will begin to look at it. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if a governor or two starts to look at it. And uh, this is something that uh, I don't expect it to be the forefront issue. I think the tax code will be in health care. Right. But I think uh, candidates will uh, want to understand more about it than uh, was the case in 2012. In 2012, as you know, the Republican convention had a – a plank in the platform calling for a, a commission to study monetary policy, right? Uh, which was a nice way of opening the door, a uh, safe way of opening the door. And sadly, uh, Governor Romney uh, uh, shut it firmly. Well, he's a, he's not a gold standard guy. He's a technocrat, right? Um, well, so. uh, but but uh, gold standard know, isn't complicated mean, enough for his high IQ, I guess. Well, that may be the case, but uh, the, the thing is uh, people learn. I mean, you look right. at uh, – take tax policy. The Ronald Reagan of 1980 was light years ahead of the Ronald Reagan of 1976. Reagan could learn. And that's what I, I'm trying to find in candidates, candidates who uh, can move forward and uh, have an interest. Reagan had real curiosity. Well, I'm hearing. He I got credit for. I'm hearing a. Uh, I know it's a shame. It was a genuine thinker. Um, I, I'm hearing a, a fairly convincing, optimistic case for there being a robust discussion about the gold standard. Um, I don't know if if you're making, if you if you're. I'm not hearing a persuasive case for optimism that we will adopt a gold standard short of a significant. A monetary crisis. I mean, if I'm looking, Rand Paul's the only one who's at all committed to this, and he's not even sort of publicly committed. And that, yes, they will learn. But I mean, just just put on your Crystal Owl award-winning forecasting skills, right? <laughs> First time I interviewed you, we talked about the Crystal Owl, um, and and you give me a probability that we will adopt a gold standard without night say 1970s type inflation or you know without some kind of crisis that we that we get a gold standard out of the 2016 election without a crisis what well, how, how would you assess that probability well i think what we're in now is what you might call a low fever crisis right. uh, that could easily break out and uh, people want a cure to the fever so uh, if you had a president who uh, pushed it i think it would uh, f come in place rather quickly and uh, in terms of uh, in terms of a uh, crisis, you could have a currency crisis, a crisis, uh, say a sovereign debt crisis again in Europe, 
or something like that that is not a global disaster such as we had in 2008, 2009, or what we had throughout the 1970s. Right. Uh, and and uh, that could uh, be, be, be the catalyst. Uh, and we will get a crisis. I mean, you look at the 1990s, seen as a nice benign decade where we had the British pound fall apart in the early 90s, the Mexican crisis in 94, right. Russia defaulting in 97, the Asian contagion in 90, 1998. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. And on and on we go. So, uh, uh, something's going to uh, pop up. And the key thing is to have the intellectual framework, groundwork, uh, prepared in advance. So when a crisis pops up, uh, the uh, we, we can go to work and say, here's a way to prevent this from happening again. Yeah. And I guess that's my base case, too. Um, I didn't I, I'm I'm not um, urging people to read your book because I think that we're going to adopt a gold standard in the next two years. I'm urging people to read your book, first of all, just so they can understand the way the world works, to uh, quote a mutual friend uh, and uh, a late friend of ours. Um, Also, so they can be better investors and entrepreneurs, but also so they they can be rebuilders when, you know, we have some crises. I mean, the interesting thing about the analogies that you ran, the crisis with the pound and the crisis with the the ruble and the Brazilian real and the Thai bot, ringgit, um, all the rest of them in, in the late 90s is, it seems like the developed world is more in the fiscal and monetary position that the emerging market was during the 90s crises. I mean, we're the, we're the ones with the high debt now. <laughs> it's 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 not Indonesia. Um it's not Thailand. It's it's not Taiwan. It's not uh, Hong Kong. It's not it's not Korea. Um it's uh it's not even Russia. It's us. It seems like in some sense, I mean, I know we have deep liquidity uh, and all the rest mon- of it. Monetary sinning knows no borders. And uh, right. we, 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 we see it with the flounderings of Japan. We see it in uh, even with the euro, which could be a gold-backed currency and uh, take the place of the dollar. Uh, we see the uh, uh, IMF continuously undermining uh, good reform in uh, southern Europe. So uh, uh, it really doesn't matter the country. Uh, any country can slip into it, and you won't know in advance which one it will be because, as we saw with the agent contagion, uh, there objectively, there should have been no currency collapse in any of those countries. But uh, it started. They didn't know how to handle it. They made it worse, and uh, boom. But before you go on, um, why – uh, that's an interest. I've never heard that assertion before. I don't think you mentioned that in the book. There should, there, objectively, there should have been no crisis in any of those currencies. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? 
Well, uh, if, if, if you look at, uh, even if you uh, look at the things you shouldn't be looking at, like balance of payments, uh, the, the, the Asian nations in 97, 98 were not uh, out of whack. Uh, what happened was the U.S. did something right. We put in a big tax cut. That made the dollar more attractive, which put pressure on the Asian currencies attached to the dollar. Uh, Thailand was uh, misbehaving a little bit, but not much. Uh, it would have been very easy uh, if these countries knew what they were doing to uh, contain the crisis, just as it would have been very easy in the early 90s, 1992, for the uh, Bank of England to fend off uh, George Soros and others. But Soros and others were uh, right in sensing that uh, the Bank of England did not know what it's doing, that Britain's economy was uh, uh, floundering a bit, and uh, they, they, they swooped in for the kill. Yeah. And if, if you don't know what you're doing, that's what's going to happen. I see. So it wasn't inevitable given their macroeconomic conditions, but it was, not at it, all. It was, inevitable, mean, mentioned... it was inevitable given their ignorance of monetary mechanisms. Yeah, we, 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 we do mention in the book about the Thai bat. Yeah, that uh, Thailand had more than sufficient reserves right. to uh, cope with the crisis. But what these countries do is what economists call sterilization. That is, they would buy their currency in the uh, foreign exchange market using their dollar reserves. That's fine. Right. But then they would reintroduce their currency in the domestic market. So uh, the monetary base, uh, in right. fact, the base money supply didn't change at all. All they did was run down their reserves. Right. So in essence, aren't they cheating? Weren't they? Che um, it seems to me that they were cheating on their dollar peg because you can't debase your currency uh, into infinity and still expect it to hold its exchange value against countries that aren't debasing their currency. I think it was more ignorance rather than cheating because uh, we did the same thing in the 50s and 60s under the Bretton Woods system. Right. Uh, we had schizophrenia. Uh, countries uh, uh, would, on the one hand, want to use monetary policy to goose their domestic policy, which means uh, printing a lot of money, manipulating interest rates, right, and yet have a stable, uh, uh, stable exchange rate yeah. tied to gold. And you can't have it and both ways. You can't have it both ways. Right. And uh, so uh, it was out of ignorance. Uh, uh, our mutual friend Nathan Lewis uh, writes about how uh, Arthur Burns in 1971, when they were debating what to do, uh, on the one hand, was quite willing to print a lot of money to achieve 9% nominal GDP growth to yes. help Nixon get reelected. Right. And on the other hand, he was a vigorous proponent of not abandoning the gold standard. Yes. I mean, <laughs> right up until the moment when we completely and utterly abandoned it. Right. And so he, 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 never, he never saw the contradiction. Yeah. And so uh, Thailand didn't see it. Uh, we mentioned Russia. Got it right in 2008. Yes, when uh, when their the ruble came under attack, initially they made the same mistake uh, Thailand and others made. Uh, then in early 2009, they started to reduce their base money. Yeah, and uh, they they beat the crisis back. Yeah, and that's interesting. That's sort of what they're doing now. I mean, we can talk about all the other mistakes they might be making, but um, they seem to at least have some understanding of, about monetary tightening. Um, as a method of at least um, uh, diminishing the movement away from the ruble. So in, in the end, your currency is only as good as your willingness to adhere to some kind of standard. You and I think the gold standard is the best, 
But if it's not the gold standard, at least some kind of monetary discipline, some kind of peg to another currency, you can't play and, and, you can't and, play and, Keynesianism Alan, at home and and stable and stable money abroad in the foreign exchange markets and have that go on forever. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah. The bottom line is you have to have the knowledge to know how to do it right. It's not it's not enough to have the intentions. You have to have the knowledge to know how to make it work. All right, and I'll that's take that corrective. Why we wrote the book? I won't call them cheaters it gives anymore. You the knowledge. I won't I won't call them cheaters anymore. I don't know what the other word is, <laughs> buffoons or whatever. Um, they 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 don't know how to do in, it. In right. need of reeducation. That's true. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to reeducate uh, the the Russians, or maybe we need to reeducate the Americans. I'm glad you brought up Bretton Woods. Um, because there's a kind of an ongoing debate among supply siders. Um, and I read you as sort of neutral on this in the book Money, but I'd like to get a better sense. You know, um, people like Jacques Reef or Roof, however you pronounce it, and Lou Lehrman um, and Henry Hazlitt um, and von Mises, I think, and Hayek said that they, these are all advocates of a gold standard. They all said that the best gold standard is the currency um, is in some sense backed by gold or tied to gold, not necessarily gold in the vault, but it's tied to a certain value of gold. Um, and they tended to see the Genoa Accords in the 1920s, which might be a little obscure, or let's say Bretton Woods, as a system which was likely to be abused um, and likely to collapse uh, because it was it was it was you were you were pegged not just to gold but you could also be pegged to the dollar and you could choose whether to be pegged to the dollar or to gold um now if this puts you in an awkward position because you know maybe you don't want to take sides in intra nicene uh supply side debates that's fine but if you do have opinions i'd sort of like to hear you know is, is brett was bretton woods all that it could have been or are critics and I mean gold standard, critics from the gold standard side write that there's a certain instability or subject, uh, vulnerability to abuse of the Bretton Woods system, which would tend to make it less stable than the pure classical gold standard. Uh, well, the, the key thing is to uh, uh, fix the currency to uh, gold, a uh, fixed rate. And uh, you can have a one percent or two percent up and down, but uh, around, around, around a fixed rate. And uh, how you achieve, how you uh, make that function, uh, we point out there are variations on the gold standard, just as there are variations of uh, how countries do democracies. I mean, our system's very different from Canada's, which is very different from, say, Germany's, uh, or different from Britain's. So uh, you can have variations of it, but the key is that the currency has a fixed value in relation to gold. And uh, the, the, the real flaw of the Bretton Woods system was that only one currency was uh, formally fixed to gold. Right. Other currencies are fixed to the dollar, which means they're de facto fixed to gold. But what it meant was that if the U.S. didn't do it right, uh, the whole system would collapse. That's Whereas it. Whereas under the classical gold standard, uh, if a country messed up, all right, the other countries could go their merry way. So it was, again, ignorance that did in Bretton Woods uh, uh, and uh, people wanting to use monetary policy to goose up growth, uh, which is uh, we argue is a, is a destructive thing anyway. It ends up doing more harm than good. So you're not giving up a tool that helps your economy. You're giving up a tool that harms your economy, but people don't realize that even today. 
We talk about the Fed helping stimulate the economy. We explain it. It distorts the economy. doesn't help it. But uh, so you had, on the one hand, they wanted to use monetary policy as an economic tool, and on the other hand, have the fixed fixed rates. Yes. And so you had capital controls. Uh, the U.S. in the early 60s put pressure on companies to invest less uh, overseas, which is preposterous. Britain and New Zealand and others had restrictions on the amount of currency you could take out of the country. So uh, they're trying all these expedients to uh, uh, do do both things at the same time. And the countries that uh, had the soundest money in those days, which happened to be Germany and Japan, right. uh, uh, didn't, didn't uh, especially Germany, uh, did did better. Japan did well as, uh, too, uh, by not uh, trying to practice schizophrenia. And then when they had strong currencies, we accused them of currency manipulation. Yeah, I guess it's <laughs> I, it's it's a, it's again one of those Keynesianism at home um, with you know cl- you know alleged classical gold standard abroad, and th- those can't coexist together. No, you can't be a virgin and a streetwalker at the same time. Right. Know? It just does not work. So uh, so uh, the the key thing on uh, Bretton Woods, we, if we knew what we were doing and understood what a gold standard was, it was not just having piles of gold. Uh, I think it was, again, Nathan pointed out that, uh, and others have, that after World War II, the United States had about uh, – you know, almost 40% of the world's gold supply. Uh, by yes. the late 40s, I think it was over 700 million ounces. Yes. Before World War One, Britain had only about 1.5% of the gold supply, a little over 7 million ounces, and uh, they made the system work. So it's not the amount of gold you have. It's knowing, uh, having some sense of what you're doing. So with 700 million ounces, uh, we ran the system into the ground and uh, blew it up unnecessarily. There was no crisis that precipitated uh, the Bretton Woods collapse other than uh, our own foolishness. In this case, the Bank of England noticing that uh, we didn't know what we were doing, and so they were uh, converting uh, pounds, before that the French, uh, converting currency into uh, gold. And Robert Robert Mundell said one day the, the British showed up and said, we'd like $3 billion worth of gold, please. (laughs) <laughs> and the Nixon administration said, I don't think we can afford it, and we broke our covenant with the rest of the world. Um, but I, I think your point is that it was already wobbly before that. And at this point, I, I kind of like to bring in the trade deficit, because I agree with all your criticisms of the trade deficit obsession um, in your book, Money, um, how the destruction of the dollar threatens the global economy and what we can do about it. But there's a point that Robert Mundell makes, um, and again, Reef makes it and, and uh, Lehrman makes it too, that if you are on some kind of official gold standard or gold exchange standard like we were with um, Bretton, with Bretton Woods, um, and you want to you know, debase your currency anyway at home for reasons of Keynesian stimulus, that – the trade deficit can be an enabler for a certain period of time. If I want to keep interest rates artificially low and I want to goose my economy, um, then somebody's got to take all those dollars I'm printing, right? And so those going overseas, you know, if, if foreign um, central banks are taking those dollars, they are helping to keep alive the illusion that I'm, pr- uh, that I'm um, practicing monetary discipline when, in fact, I'm not um, keeping monetary discipline. What, I'd like to hear your reaction to that idea. 
Uh, well, I think it boils down. Uh, put put aside trade, uh, which uh, the only way you have a trade or balance of payments crisis is because you uh, put certain transactions in one basket and other transactions in another basket. So uh, if I buy, if somebody buys an airplane from Boeing, that's considered good. If somebody buys stock or a bond from us, that's somehow considered not as good. And uh, so uh, it, it, it's an arbitrary thing. And one of the, one of the, uh, I think it was one of the governors of Hong Kong, a fellow named uh, Copperthwaite, who uh, who uh, understood the foolishness of uh, these trade numbers, banned the banned these numbers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he, he he said it just leads to mischief. So don't. <laughs> Don't compile them. We'll just do things we shouldn't do. It. If we measure it, someone will try to control it, and that'll get us into trouble. Um, or as Bob Bartley said, uh, uh, you know, Park Avenue might notice it has a trade deficit in Manhattan <laughs> being a tizzy, and uh, we have to do something about it. So, uh, so uh, what, what, what it boiled down to was not so much trade and capital flows as was the fact that we weren't doing what was necessary to keep the currency stable, right. which would have meant using open market operations to uh, make sure that uh, the dollar didn't fluctuate uh, from 35 in those days, uh, $35 an ounce. Yeah. And we just did not know what we were doing. Yeah. If you're ignorant, you will uh, get in trouble. Flying an airplane and you're ignorant, eventually you're going <laughs> to have a smash up. <laughs> you're, you are a more charitable person than I am. I just realized that. That just occurred to me because I wonder if they were just ignorant or if they liked the degrees of freedom that they the extra degrees of freedom they got by not being on a classical gold standard. Well, they 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 took in uh, take Burns, who uh, has been rightly criticized for a loose monetary policy, and uh, Nixon loved him because back in 1960, uh, Burns had warned Nixon that a recession was coming. This is a presidential election year. And uh, it, it was going to cost him, uh, going to cost him votes, and Nixon never forgot that. So he wanted Burns at uh, the Fed to make sure that uh, they they didn't have an unnecessary, in his mind, uh, economic sluggishness that would uh, cost him, in this case, re-election. Right. So uh, it was uh, they they liked they they thought that uh, uh, gold. Uh, standard was one good in the sense they did not want to repeat of the 1930s. That's what they all learned. That right. Beggar thy neighbor. They knew trade wars were bad. They knew currency wars were bad. So they they knew they had to have that kind of stability, and uh, that's why they. But they also felt that uh, using monetary policy and fiscal policy to uh, guide the economy was uh, not only good but a necessity. None of them really understood what caused the Great Depression, and so uh, which seemed to come out of nowhere. And so uh, they uh, thought that you needed government to what they used to call stabilizers. Right. I'd call them destabilizers, but they call them stabilizers. And uh, so how to how to make how to have stabilizers at the same time as they they thought the strictures of a gold standard. They thought the gold standard meant tightness and and uh, hard times. Uh, was tainted with the Great Depression. Gold standard was austerity to them. Yes, right. I get instead of a stability. I austerity instead of stability. That's that's and good. It, and it all goes back to uh, William Jennings Bryan. Thou shalt not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Yes, right. And uh, he uh, 
you know, farmers were going through a hard time, and he blamed it on uh, a tight currency. So, uh, and by the way, Brian got his wish in the 1970s when we uh, mistakenly sharply devalued the dollar. And for a while, agriculture boomed. Farmland prices zoomed up. Commodity prices zoomed up. Planting zoomed up. And then it all then came crashing down in the 80s. Yes, yes. All right, let's go back to the Great Depression. Um, that's Since that is the sort of, you know, um, that's the mind tattoo that all Americans carry with them when they talk about economics. Um, you know, the thing that's always there, sort of the back of the mind, how do we avoid the Great Depression? Um, right. the, I think one of the points that you made very effectively in the book Money, um, and this is not made often enough, is that a gold standard incompetently applied um, can be very destructive. And it was um, um, uh, in in 1920s, or at least af after World War I, um, and that um, you have to understand how gold standards actually work and how, how, how many dynamics actually work in order to avoid, uh, in order to answer this false charge that a gold standard is a depression, um, a, a depression trigger. So talk to me a little bit about what was wrong about the way the gold standard was when, when countries started to go back on the gold standard after World War I. Um, tell me what was kind of wrong with the thinking there. Well, uh, this would make an interesting study is to uh, uh, perhaps even before World War I, uh, people began to forget why the classical gold standard worked. And uh, they just knew they did things and uh, good results came from it. But uh, after World War I, they got this idea, strangely, that there was a gold shortage and uh, didn't uh, connect the dots that when you have a, war, a big war, and this was a catastrophe, the Great War, uh, and big wars always end up being financed through, at least in part, by inflation, that uh, you had, in effect, a new price level. Uh, currencies had been devalued as part of the way of financing the war. And uh, so instead of seeing the war as a one-time catastrophe, and therefore you adjust to the new realities after the war, uh, the U.S. Uh, went back to the pre-war parity, 20, in those days $20.67 an ounce. We could do it because we weren't in the war that long, uh, but we did suffer a severe depression from it, which we recovered from very quickly because the government didn't do anything. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, but the catastrophic case was uh, Britain which instead of uh, realizing the war was a one-time event and uh, uh, readjusting uh, a new, uh, having the pound readjust to the new realities, they uh, went through a severe, long-drawn-out deflation to get the, the pound back to its pre-war uh, parity with gold. Whereas the French, when they finally fixed the gold in the mid-1920s, Italy uh, as well, uh, took, a, took account of the wartime and post-war inflation and uh, had a new parity and they did uh, just fine uh, and Britain though felt that if they did not go back to their pre-war uh, ratio gold to the pound gold to sterling that uh, that would somehow hurt their uh, national ability prestige. to be the yeah. 
Not more than national prestige. They thought uh, this was the essence of them as being this epicenter of the world of global finance. Right. And and in their minds, you know, uh, they didn't uh, uh, go for inflation in the 1690s, early 1700s, when Newton fixed. You know, they did not use the Recoinage Act to uh, put in a devaluation, which had always been done before. And then after the Napoleonic Wars, they uh, even though they had a wartime inflation. They deflated. But one thing they did after the Napoleonic Wars was they did get rid of the income tax. Yes. So they could grow their way uh, so through the deflation. they could grow their way out of it. Yeah, right. And, uh, but in the case of uh, World War One, they did not get rid of their uh, wartime taxes, kept most of them on. So they ended up uh, with the worst of both worlds, a deflation. And then because the early 20s were a sluggish time economically, they put in a lot of uh, – Welfare programs right. and uh, unemployment uh, right. programs, which uh, immunization, you know, minimum it, it, wages. All, it, all, it all came together to make for a very sluggish economy. But the 20s, other than Great Britain, uh, were starting to be a decent decade. Uh, France recovered. The U.S. Right. had a booming decade. So, so it, it's it's almost like Britain and the United States in the twenties are and France are sort of three different examples of how to handle things. Right. In the United States, you have a deflationary gold standard. In the United States, um, let me take a step back. I think the principle here is if you're going to impose a gold standard, you have to set a value to gold. You have to decide, you know, um, how much what the, what the relationship is between your currency and gold. You don't just set a gold standard. It's a standard at what amount? Is it $35 an ounce? Is it $20 an ounce? You have to, yeah, the, you have to come up with a number, keep, right? Yeah, the it, thing to keep in mind is gold's intrinsic value is stable. The question is, what value do you wish to uh, have your currency uh, pegged at? Good point. You're not deciding how valuable gold will be. You're, just, you're deciding how valuable your, your currency will be. In relation the to unit of your, the unit of your currency, right. which is why and, it's so uh, silly. I hear people arguing against the gold standard because gold prices are unstable. Look how much they move around. And I want to say, no, that's not gold prices being unstable. That's dollar prices being unstable. Uh, and uh, perceptions of the dollar. You know, three years ago, everyone thought uh, the world was coming to an end. So gold shot up to nineteen hundred dollars an ounce. This is in 1980. Yes. Everyone thought uh, the world was coming to a collapse, and so gold shot up from 300 to $870 an ounce. That was perceptions about the future. <laughs> and I remember one of your writers, one of your columnists, I'm not going to mention a name, wrote a couple of articles when gold was at uh, $1,900 an ounce, suggesting that that uh, was uh, a little high. Uh, and uh, got got got, got <laughs> and uh, that person, as I recall, I, I'm not going to say his name, got a lot of flack from the gold bugs, um, saying that at $1,900 an ounce, gold does not quite shine. But we'll set all that aside. Who, who knows? Maybe I'll even edit that out. Um, uh, so, uh, what, what I think what I'm hearing you say, I'm going to say it a little differently than you said that you said it. But I think what I'm hearing you say, in my own words, is if you're going to go on a gold standard. Um, when you choose the parity or the value to assign, yep. use the wisdom of the market. Don't use some sense of what, what, what the price was 20 years ago or some glorious past or something like that, that the market has information in it. The market price of gold now is the best piece of information we have about how much a dollar is worth. So if we went on a gold standard now, 
we wouldn't go back and say, well, we went off the gold standard in 1971, so you know, let's go back to whatever the gold price was before then. That would be catastrophic. We've already cheated. I'm going to use the word cheated again so much and debased our currency so much that we just have to say that's done. That loss has occurred. A generation has lost 80% of its purchasing power. From from here on, we're going to use the market price at the time we go on the gold standard. We're going, to, we're going to use market wisdom to determine what the price should be that we're going to lock in now. Uh, yes, and what you uh, and you can uh, use uh, various measures as starting points, like what's the average for the last five years or ten years to get some feel, because right. uh, there's probably still, perhaps we don't know, in the current dollar price of gold, anticipation of trouble. We just don't know. Uh, until uh, we announce that we're going to do it, and it may be gold may go down two hundred dollars, you know, another two hundred, three hundred dollars an ounce. As people uh, uh, say, all right, we're not going to have a terrible uh, time in the future, so uh, we 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 uh, will unload our gold. Uh, we don't know, but the key thing is, you don't want to set a new parity that produces pressures to reduce nominal wages. Because politically, uh, you'll just put yourself in a box like the Brits did in the 20s. Well, right. So, and, uh, and, and isn't it the case that um, a, an economy that has a lot of wage floors, say, for instance, minimum wage or um, union wages uh, and civil, servant, civil service type wages, is much less able to deal with deflation than an economy that has flexible labor markets? Yeah. And uh, – and, uh, well, what, what, what you do is you uh, uh, go through very painful internal adjustments and uh, unnecessarily. So uh, get, get, get the parity right, even if it means a little above what you might think it should be. Better that than uh, uh, painting a system through uh, pressure on wages. Yeah, otherwise you, you push the uh, market wage below the minimum wage and you cause mass unemployment, and then the gold standard gets blamed once again for something that isn't its fault. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get, again, do it right. Which yeah. The Brits didn't do it in the 20s. And, and, could, and couldn't we argue that what happened with the Depression, what happened in the 1920s and 30s, wasn't really not just a matter of what happens when you do the gold standard wrongly, but not following the gold standard? Because if you do an inflation like we did, you know, in the teens and early, and early 20s, um, like a lot of the world did, um, and then incompetently go back on gold standard, you created a Keynesian boom-bust cycle. Well, we 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 had that in uh, uh, you know after World War One in the early twenties, and uh, but uh, Britain could have maybe gotten away with what it did if it had uh, done what it did after the Napoleonic Wars and gotten rid of or sharply reduced the income tax. Yes, then they might have been able to <laughs> make it work. Well, Britain did did all of it wrong. I mean, Britain you know incompetently did the gold standard. It built a welfare state, and it kept taxes high. So yeah. it was it was an economic disaster, which almost ended the career of Winston Spencer Churchill. Thank God it didn't. He bounced back. He was a man who didn't give up, never, never, ever give in. Um, and by the way, there's an interesting uh, thing on that. Churchill sensed that uh, going to what they called 486, you know, pound equivalent of $4.86, which is the pre-war parity, uh, might not be right. But politically, he had no choice. Uh, the the city, as they called uh, the uh, London equivalent of Wall Street, was four four eighty six. 
The business community was for 486, and their associations weighed in on it. His predecessor, a socialist, Chancellor of the Exchequer, said it's got to go to 486. Interesting. So I didn't got know no any support this. from the opposition. His boss, the prime minister, was for it. He had no support to go against it. Then, as a last-ditch effort, he held a dinner with uh, Keynes, who uh, didn't want to go back on a gold standard, a fellow named McKenna, who headed up one of the big banks and been a former cabinet officer, a man of enormous prestige, and uh, three others from Treasury, or some, a few other people at the dinner. And he's hoping that the uh, opponents of going back to 486, i.e. Keynes and McKenna, would win, could make the case that uh, maybe they should uh, rethink this. McKenna gave it up at the beginning of the dinner saying, we shouldn't go back, but uh, politically we have no choice. He was a realist, as we label them today. Hmm. And then Keynes went into some abstruse, obtuse <laughs> comparison of standards of living in Britain and the U.S., putting everyone to sleep. And after the dinner, Churchill knew the game was up. I didn't know any of that. Where'd you get that? That's a gem of a story. Where'd you learn that? Uh, it's in uh, Roy Jenkins' biography of uh, Winston Churchill. I see. Well, I, I just looked up at the at the clock, and I see that I've um, taken six minutes more from you than um, than you had allotted, so I apologize for that. Um, but I'm just enjoying this. Not at this. all. But uh, the, 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 the bottom line in all of it is all we have to do is remember money is a measure of value, just like 60 minutes is a measure of hours, a measure of time. Clocks measure time. Scales measure weight. Rulers measure length. Money measures value. And if we understand that, that when you have a fixed value, just as you have a fixed uh, measure of uh, time or of length, uh, life is a lot less chaotic. And the other thing to keep in mind is money works when there's trust. Is this way of you? Is this your subtle way of complaining? Because I went past our allotted time. No, not at all. <laughs> I know I'm kidding. No, not at all. I, 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 I just, I just want to <laughs> make that point. Those points. Yeah. And that's a good uh, point. Uh, money, when uh, when you have it fixed enables strangers to deal with each other, helps break down barriers. And if you erode that trust, it goes way beyond GDP numbers and uh, uh, hurts all of society. Well, there's a moral element to uh, the gold standard, is. isn't there? Absolutely. Because when you muck around with the value of money, <clears throat> you give arbitrary winners and arbitrary losers. And if people feel that the marketplace is like that, then you get political troubles and you did demagogues and you destroy the middle class which tends to be not just a political uh, bulwark against revolution but also kind of a, a moral bulwark you know bourgeois values and all that but the bourgeois loses and, its clout and it hurts and it hurts mobility which is how people feel i may not start with anything but i have a chance to move up yeah you know i think our, our mutual friend seth lipsky pointed out in his review of your book that you know that Thomas Piketty, the sort of the superstar, the Keynesian superstar of the, of the moment, um, doesn't pay any attention whatsoever to the significance of the fact that the great increase in inequality in, in America starts in 1971. He seems to be unaware of any possible significance to that particular year. <laughs> Again, like the Bank of England, <laughs> can't, can't connect the dots. Right. They can't, and um, I'm the, my friend Ned Phelps, in his wonderful book, Mass Flourishing, about our lack of innovation, he says, you know, for some reason, 
our innovation really tails off here in America after 1971. And I want to say, Ned, you know, what would what would your what would your mutual Nobelist Robert Mundell say about that date? You know, a lot of bad things start happening in 1971, and, and no when one... we got Go and when we got semi stability in the 80s and 90s, by God, innovation flourished. Yeah, fascinating. Well, all right. Anything else you want to leave us with? Uh, we're now ten minutes past your allotted time, but you're, <laughs> you're going to be the, you're going to have to be the one who cuts this off because I'm enjoying it so much. Anything else you want to leave us with before we uh, end this interview? I think I think we covered a lot of ground. And uh, again, what people should keep in mind is this is not a complicated subject. Uh, the wizard is a fraud, <laughs> or the wizards, I should say. <laughs> the 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 flawed monetary theories are complicated. The true monetary theory is simple. Absolutely. As is so often with so many other things. Steve Forbes, author of Money, How the Destruction of the Dollar Threatens the Global Economy and What We Can Do About It. Thanks so much for taking this time and uh, some extra time to be with us today. Fantastic. Enjoyed it. Take care, Steve. Thanks, Jerry. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com